that if only we could control the world a little bit more, you know, if only we could, you know, be a little bit more successful here and if only we could get people to act in a certain way or to have a little bit more of this or a little bit less of that and to just keep trying to hold on to everything and, and, and just keep it the way it should be, then you'll be okay, right? <laughs> and the, re, you know, the tough news is that actually we live in this crazy dynamic world that is so complicated, like that the impacts of your actions are impossible to predict. And so to be holding your, you know, sense of self and happiness and your readiness to be compassionate hostage to the situation being ready for it, you're going to be holding your best for a long time. And I don't think it's difficult to shift that if only you were told from the beginning. And it's quite simple when you look at the neuroscience and you just say, hey, like your experience is really just something that is happening in your nervous system. Welcome to the uh, Flow Sutra podcast, a place where we discuss all things flow and all things self-transcendence. Uh, today we have a very special guest, <laughs> Lars Sanford-Smith, who is a computational neuroscientist and is currently doing his um, doctoral research on um, contemplative neuroscience, specifically around meta-awareness. And I am so excited for the research that you're doing. I know we talked about it, you know, um, a couple of weeks ago, and it was just so fascinating for me to hear about all the things that you're working on. Um, I also feel like just as a way of introduction, um, so we both met at KPMG and we have a similar sort of uh, background in terms of working in that corporate world and that management consulting world and then you know burnout striking and then you know pivoting into um a very different way of life if you will so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what that journey was like for you yeah well thanks so much for having me on the podcast first of all it's really cool to be talking with you again um yeah, you're right. So we met at KPMG in one of the sessions that I was, I was doing there and uh, delivering a bit of a meditation talk. And um, that's kind of this end of this full circle that I guess I've uh, gone through um, from working at KPMG um, and then consulting. I kind of moved to Deloitte as well and stayed in management consulting for a little bit and then discovering a little bit about, you know, I wasn't quite happy. I wasn't quite enjoying it. And then, and then I left and retrained and went deep into meditation and neuroscience. And I kind of coming full circle around now and delivering the talk back at KPMG. Um, but to kind of flesh that out a little bit, I guess it all started um, even before consulting uh, because my background originally was in physics and philosophy. And the kinds of questions that really got me excited about doing that um, were things like um, basically came from reading a lot of sci-fi and, and just enjoying, you know, talking about what really is going on, you know, what do we know about how the universe works and our place within it. And, uh, and then I sort of started to go down this route, um, an academic route within physics, and for a bunch of different reasons, 
ended up bailing out of it, um, mostly because I realized that the, where I was, particularly I was in particle physics, um, if I didn't absolutely love it, like more than anything else in my life, there was no way I was going to be able to keep up, keep up with uh, everybody around me. So I kind of bailed out and then, and then uh, ended up in consulting, um, which I think is um, how it ends up for a lot of people is kind of not quite knowing necessarily. I don't know how it was for you, but I wasn't exactly sure at that point what I wanted to do, but consulting kind of ticks all these boxes, right? You know, like um, great, like soft skills and people skills and lots of different projects and you get to learn lots of things and try different industries. Um, and so I ended up at, at uh, on the grad scheme at KPMG um, and, you know, really enjoyed it for, you know, I think like having left, I can kind of sometimes look back and be like, oh no, it was so, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever. But I, I learned so much there and met really amazing people and, and um, I was doing uh, mergers and acquisitions or tech consulting. Um, and uh, essentially what happened was that although I wasn't aware of it at all at the time, I was burning out. And I didn't even have that language for it at the time um, because I was just, you know, pretty new. I mean, this was like a few years, a few years in at this point. Um, I was quite new and just wanted to really prove myself all the time and, and you know, do my best and, and, and just being early in my career, I kind of ignored everything else a little bit. Um, and I think that's pretty common. I think that's kind of what these companies uh, survive of a lot of the time is sort of like, you know, people wanting to do well right out of university and stuff. So um, I was really pushing myself pretty hard and it was just combined with a pretty um, poor boss at the time. And I think it just takes one person in your team to make your life really difficult, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and this guy had it out for me from the beginning, mm -hmm. and I still don't really understand why, but um, all that together meant that um, I actually ended up uh, getting really bad migraines for the first time in my life. And that never happened to me before, and I kind of ignored it and ignored it and ignored it, and it got so bad that I, that I couldn't eat and I couldn't keep down painkillers. And then suddenly I found myself in the hospital on a drip because of dehydration, and it was just kind of like this wake up call like whoa how did I get here you know and I'm ignoring it still working and doing it doing my thing and then all of a sudden I'm like completely out um and so it launched for me this um questioning a little bit um and I took some time off and uh, it also coincided with me then changing company and I my and I and I had a bit of a break between between there and it was an unexpected break because of gardening leave. And so I just had these few months on my hand all of a sudden with time to kind of go inward and figure out what had happened there, how to manage it. Um, and so that was about when I started discovering meditation and I really enjoyed it. I, I kind of started it off as a bit of an experiment and just said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just try this for however many days, however much a day and see what happens. And I really didn't understand what was happening at all. And I hated that <laughs> because I'd come from this like physics background, you know, where pretty much everything is, you know, it's well mapped out. There's kind of very few fuzzy edges. I mean, there are, of course, but uh, the mindset that I had coming from that world was like, well, I, I, have, I think I have a sense that I understand what's going on in the world. Like I, more or less, like I get like there's the physics of the very small and then there's like sort of biology somewhere in between and then the physics is very big and we sort of fit into that in some, in some way and, and that's kind of that. Um, but then 
with meditation, there was just this kind of series of experiences that I didn't have a box to put them in. And without putting too much importance on what the experience was or, you know, how to interpret it or whatever, what really was powerful for me was that it just pulled this worldview, this like world model that I had out from underneath me. And I just ended up in this kind of like, like void like space in my mind of like wow I really don't know anything actually like I, I had all these beliefs and all these ideas about how things work and then I'm doing this stuff and I have no idea how to make sense of it um and so that just like sent me on this um at the time I guess I was I was seeking pretty pretty hard and I wouldn't have said that at the time but you know all my time was spent you know reading and listening to podcasts and 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 just getting deep into um, trying to figure out what meditation is and what it's about. And so because I had this background in science, I started gravitating towards the science of meditation and figuring out, okay, well, you know, this is something I'm doing with my nervous system, I guess. So what exactly do we know about how it's changing the nervous system or what the nervous system is or how the nervous system interacts with the environment? And that's what led me to contemplative neuroscience. So first I was just reading it um, myself and just out of interest and then eventually um, got to the point where I realized okay I don't want to continue in consulting and I'm finding this really interesting and I could tell there was so much value in it like me you know a year or two before compared to me then it was just like I could tell I could tell that something had changed and if somebody had asked me to articulate exactly what at the time it's kind of difficult um, but things just seemed better right and so um, took a bit of a leap and uh, both my girlfriend and I actually left London and we went to India with not much of a plan and um, studied yoga out there and did yoga teacher trainings and had a really good time and, and really just sank into the practice. And then when I got back from that, I was even more sure that that's kind of where I wanted to take things. Um, and I thought with my background in science, I could most effect, be most effective um, in um, getting into the research. I want to say most effective, like where can I put my energy into to help um, spread these tools as, as, as widely and as, and as effectively as possible? I thought, well, might as well leverage some of what I've done and go back into the science. And that's how I ended up um, back in research, this time in computational neuroscience. Um, and I was lucky enough to um, start working with a researcher in meditation research here in France, um, a guy called Antoine Roots, um, who I'd, I'd known about through my reading beforehand. And I kind of messaged, I emailed him straight away almost. And I was like, hey, I'd really like to come join you. Um, and it was just good timing and, and, and we got on. So I've been working with him since. And uh, yeah, a few years later, here I am and now going back to KPMG and sort of bringing what I've learned on that journey um, into the form of, you know, a few talks and, and courses that I've been delivering um, within a different consulting firm since then. Uh, so that's... A bit of a long. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love how you've kind of laid it all out because I feel like a lot of people have these similar experiences, especially, you know, working in this like high pressure environment and then going through burnout. And, you know, when you were talking about um, ending up in the hospital, like literally and having like just one person just 
um, having so much anxiety and stress that they don't know how to emotionally self-regulate that they take it out on their co-workers and it could just be one person but I yeah. think the way our brains work like mirror neurons and things like that you know we kind of just um, almost as strong as our practice can be sometimes you know it, it, it's if someone's directing all that stress and anxiety at you, then that really takes a toll on our nervous system, right? Like, Absolutely. And, and even for me, I ended up having an anaphylaxis attack and I was just like, well, how did I end up here? Um, wow. <laughs> um, just wow. from all of that stress. Um, so, you know, like for me as well, I can see that, you know, we have parallel journeys and in, into pivoting into things that are different, but, in a way we've it, it's kind of there was this starvation of meaning from my end previously that created this void and then all of a sudden it's just like okay you know there are so many interesting things that I really care about and I really want to dedicate um you know my my life's work to to this and you know that's so beautiful and I feel like not everyone has that opportunity to to do that but it I feel like having these conversations um are important because you know a lot of people experience going through that burnout and then maybe they're still not able to find purpose or meaning from that experience and find yeah. their, their kind of you know calling or dharma if you will right yeah um, and I think I think what is can be difficult is that you know for me I was fortunate enough to just be in a period of my life um, where I could take the space and I could like take some time out to, to sort of figure out where I wanted to go next and for some people you know, you're too in it, you know, you got too many responsibilities, maybe there's kids, maybe there's mortgage, maybe there's other things, and it's, and it's hard to simultaneously keep all that afloat and sort of remove yourself from it enough to figure out what's next. Because the reason we, the reason we sort of dropped everything and went, and went out to India, I mean, it could have been anywhere, really, um, but we kept um, meeting up and saying, what do we, okay, so what, if not this, then what? And, and, and you know, what are we interested in? And what, what do we want to build? And where do we want to take things? And we couldn't really, we found that we couldn't really have that conversation while still being in that context. Because the context is reinforcing that pattern that's already been going. The people around you are reinforcing a certain value system that you feel terrified of stepping out of. Um, so I do think like travel is really powerful for that. To get out, for me, it was really, um, at that point in my life to go out and just see other people obviously living completely beautiful, valid, you know, successful lives in ways that um, have nothing to do with all the things that, you know, I thought were important uh, up until that point. And it kind of helped me relax and just be like, okay, you know, I don't need to take this too seriously. I can, I can figure out a way here, but there is a lot of privilege wrapped up in that as well. And, and I, you know, I think that is worth acknowledging that like, you know, very fortunate to be able to have done that. Yeah, I, I recognize that as well, because even I now, you know, when I think about it, I also had the privilege to take time out of work to kind of reevaluate and, you know, think about the maps and models that my brain was functioning in. And, you know, when you mm -hmm. were talking about having that rug pulled out from under you and being like, oh, wow, now I have so many different perspectives and not just yeah. this one where I've like I was pigeonholing myself into and it's just like 
um, an expansive experience using contemplative practices? No, definitely. Those experiences can, if anything else, just make you question what you previously knew, right? Absolutely. Um, and and that also brings me to um, a point in your research where I think you were talking about um, meta-awareness, the awareness of awareness. So, yeah. so even from, so from my own practice, so I've been um, practicing Vipassana-based meditation, which is, you know, just open monitoring, kind of divergent um, kind of meditation. And um I feel like there are so many different kinds of meditation and the awareness of awareness that sometimes the language and the experience that you have, like it, it's just like, what is going on, right? Because then, <laughs> then there's like meditations like uh, Zoshen, the non-duality type meditations where, mm -hmm. you know, the subject and object collapses, right? And it's just the experience itself. And so what is that awareness of awareness? What is this like witness consciousness in this language? And help us understand. <laughs> <laughs> what a question. Anyway, I mean, that is, the, that is the question. I mean, so what, what, motivated, what motivates me in my work right now and what sort of brought me into this space is a little bit of a frustration I was having around these questions um, as well. Um, as I was first sort of discovering meditation and reading, you know, Tibetan texts and, and, and Zen texts and, and Theravada Buddhism, you know, even into sort of Hindu and, and Sufi. And, and you kind of go around all these different traditions and, and you can tell that there's um, a lot of similarity about what's being talked about here. Um, and in fact, you go deep enough in each of these mystical traditions and it seems like they all arrive ultimately at a very, very similar point, even though the, the way that it's being spoken about can be so different. You know, it's being informed by the cultural, socio-historical uh, norms and contexts of the time, the tropes, the imagery that would have spoken to people. And so it sounds so different. And what's lacking uh, at the moment is a very rigorous, Western scientific version of that, that allows us to start to talk about um, exactly that. Like, what are we talking about in the meditation? What exactly hap is happening in the meditation? How do you distinguish different meditations from each other? Where are they leading? Um, where might different ones lead? What are they good for? How do we define these things rigorously? I think is important to a degree um, and certainly important to for us uh, in the West who kind of want that and crave that. Um, and I was coming into it definitely craving that. Now much less so as sort of um, trust and faith in the practice starts to kind of become more important than actually understanding it itself. But nevertheless, I think it's really important for us to be able to have a common language and a language that is kind of founded in um, science ultimately because uh, if we want large numbers of people to be you know, taking these things on board and to be understanding themselves basically and to be understanding what might work best for them, what kinds of meditation, you know, where they're at, um, then we need a bit of this sort of mechanistic uh, approach to things um, for better or for worse, right? I think maybe, you know, in some ways, the kind of Eastern model of 
like, hey, look, this this person who's very well respected, the teacher, the guru, whatever, has said this. I'm going for it, and when I'm asking questions, may actually be more effective um, in some in some ways. But that you know that is just ripe for all kinds of uh, misuse and. Uh, difficult situations that, you know, we've seen so many examples of. Um, and that just doesn't work for us in the West. We want to know why. We want to know how. If we're going to spend our time doing it, if it's going to be 20 valuable minutes in the morning that I have in my busy life, and my busy schedule, then I better understand, like, what I'm getting out of it, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which, uh, you know, is maybe um, part of the problem. But that's what, that's what my work has been um, motivated by. And, of course, this is a huge project and I'm not alone in this at all. I'm standing on the shoulders of um, many, many giants. Um, but there is a big uh, acceleration of contemplative neuro neuroscience over the last 20 years or so, as we've started to be able to look inside the brain for the first time, you know, really ever. If you think just the fMRI was invented in 1991, so recent. Um, and so we're starting to understand how these different practices change the brain, change the nervous system, change different processes going on, and beginning to build a bit of a picture. And I just want to say, labor on that point a little bit more because I find it so exciting because people kind of, when I talk about meditation, often you get this reaction like, yeah, but if it was actually important or if it was actually useful or beneficial, I would have been told that already. You know, I would already know that. Everybody would know that. And actually, that's not true. You know, we are learning stuff all the time. And we are in this period of human history that is so exciting now, where for the first time ever, we can start looking at objective measures of subjective experience and begin to piece together really um, novel insights into things that we couldn't do before except uh, based on report and so you know if we knew everything no no none of our none of, no scientists would have a job right <laughs> we wouldn't be there would be nothing left to do the fact that there's um, a lot of scientists out there working a lot of stuff means that obviously there's stuff happening we just we just fall into this trap of feeling like it's all figured out and i think it has something to do with you know how we're taught science and things at school but we are definitely in this sort of hockey stick moment in history now where we're beginning to come to grips with or start to understand a little bit more about what we are and how we might use that knowledge to improve the state of affairs basically so to come all the way around to your question <laughs> awareness of awareness well that was the question that um, i was trying to formalize in my work in computational neuroscience. So I work within a um, small sort of corner of, of neuroscience um, that's growing now, but it's um, within a framework called active inference, which is the sort of brainchild or um, you know, the, uh, the development or discovery or however you want to say it of um, neuroscientist uh, Carl Friston, mm -hmm. and of course, all of his colleagues as well. Um, and it's a model of um, what our nervous system is doing that is basically saying that your, your perception action model is 
based on this Bayesian framework of, um, it gives you, <laughs> I never know which angle to come in at this on, but it essentially gives you a framework to understand um, what is driving perception and action uh, within a biological system and other systems as well, but within a biological system is where it gets interesting. Um, and that framework is sort of defined computationally or mathematically. And so you can start to define computational models about um, different uh, cognitive systems. And um, a lot of work has been done around this and some really exciting developments on how it applies to all kinds of um, understanding different pathologies and schizophrenia and ADHD. But I came in from um, the lens of meditation and trying to understand, well, okay, there's a very uh, promising um, model here for how the brain and cognition works. Can we use this to start to understand what meditation is um, or maybe what the attention of control is, for example, uh, sorry, the control of attention is, which is where I started um, just trying to develop a model of what it would mean to control attention. Um, and as you know, from meditating, one of the first things that you get taught is if you want to control your attention, you should pay attention to where your attention is, right? So there's kind of like this meta level of paying attention. Um, and so then I was just asking the questions like, well, how do we formalize that within this framework? And that's kind of where my work has, has started and grown from. Um, so, so what does your meditation practice look like and how is your work um, informing your practice and how is your practice informing your work? <laughs> yeah, um, that's a really good question. There's been this really interesting back and forth between my modeling work and my practice. So just that, that question that I outlined there which is, you know, how do you start talking about paying attention to attention was the first sort of example of my practice informing my work. I knew from meditating that that is a, an experience that is had, right? That you can have, that is something that we can do as humans. And I'm not the only one to know that, but I had a particular sort of motivation then to be able to describe that within my work. And so then the model then, you know, I develop some, um, some extensions and sort of novel changes to it that allow you to do that kind of thing within it that gives a cognitive architecture, a computational architecture that could be said to be paying attention to where their attentional states are. Um, so it's like this self-reflective kind of move. But once you've made that move, well, then the model itself starts telling you about other things that you can pay attention to and other ways in which um, uh, you can optimize this sort of cognitive architecture. And so if you start asking then questions about like, okay, well, how, how if, this is the, if this is the architecture that um, we may or may not have, if that were the case, how best to optimize that architecture? And the question of optimization with, active, with an active inference is relatively straightforward. It's just any move that improves your minimization of this of this quantity um, free variational free energy which is your it's related to your prediction error it's like how 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 um, accurate your model of the world is um, 
or at least that's part of what weighs into it. But so you can ask questions about how best to optimize the model and those answers that you can get to can end up being um, meditation instructions. And what was really amazing as this was kind of like developing is I started to see like, oh, so that kind of direction, that type of optimization is, is, would be accomplished by a cognitive architecture doing a particular kind of thing, a particular policy. And that policy, if I were to interpret it, so take it out of the computation and into the phenomenology would be something like, and then it's like a different meditation instruction. And what started to emerge from the model was a lot of things I already knew from, from teaching meditation and being sort of um, just aware of different traditions and different types of practice and things. Um, and so I started to get pretty excited that maybe what could emerge from here is a, is a map. Um, not that we don't already have maps, you know, lots of maps that do exist, but this is a map based on, you know, pretty fundamental, information theoretic principles and it's biologically plausible and it's also widely used in neuroscience and that from that a lot of practices start to emerge um, and so I've definitely taken some of the insights from the model into my practice so let me give you a, a tangible example um, if you um, you can talk about beliefs within active inference like beliefs that are being held and so if you cast like the sense of self as a belief, right? That um, a lot of practices are trying to point you towards no longer holding that belief too strongly, right? Mm. So computationally, what does that mean? And how, what strategies could you employ to do that most effectively? Or what combination of strategies could you employ to do that most effectively? And so the kinds of things that computationally you would have to do to revise a very deeply held belief, so a very strong prior belief, the kinds of policies that you'd want to do there um, end up being pretty powerful meditation instructions. And they end up sounding like, um, like pointer, pointers, things like, um, you know, know that you don't know, right? Be confident in the fact that you cannot be confident. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you, you end up at, at some of these paradoxical kind of um, loops a little bit. Um, so what I found interesting was that the, for example, the seven factors of enlightenment from sort of Buddhist meditation theory, so things like investigations or suspended curiosity, concentration, mindfulness, joy, um, all of those, and without getting into too much detail, kind of drop out of, of some of this modeling work. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a fun journey, kind of going back and forth between the two. When you say drop out, for example, you know all of these different traditions, be it Buddhist traditions, Vedic traditions, um, Tibetan, um, it, they they all have specific set of instructions under each tradition, if you will, right? Ways to meditate. So, does it actually matter? where your awareness or where where you're placing your attention does does that matter whether it's your whether it's mindfulness of your breath whether it's mindfulness of uh, body sensations whether it's um you know so even if if i were to talk about uh, things like compassion loving con kindness meditation um insight meditation you know like yeah. all of these yeah. different kinds like they're all activating different parts of the brain right 
And what excites me so much about the research that, you know, is evolving in contemplative neurosciences Sometimes we can have all of these, we have access to all of these traditions and can kind of get lost in it and not know which is the most effective yeah. for us per se, right? And the, like, what is the most effective way to <laughs> annihilate your sense of self, you know? Yeah, well, I think it, it's not a question that has a general answer, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because what matters most or what is most effective is going to be so dependent on you um, and dependent not only on sort of your particular sort of cognitive architecture to put that that way you know the kinds of beliefs and priors and and experiences and strengths and weaknesses that you're bringing to the game but also in what you want from the practice the kinds of meditations and instructions that you're going to give somebody who just needs a way to manage acute stress in difficult moments are going to be really different to somebody who comes and says, you know, I want beyond more than anything else. um, I'm seeking awakening, enlightenment or whatever. Um, Even if they don't necessarily even know what that is, you know, there's kind of like a completely different um, motivation there and this completely different set of um, what, 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 what is good for each person. Um, But that's what I think is the potential power here is that you can have a framework that, that starts to encompass all of those things so that you can understand how what starts as a strategy that just helps you manage um, anxiety or getting out of your head and coming back to a particular object of concentration to sort of work with that, that 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 sits within a framework of practices and within sort of an understanding of how these are working on your on your mind and body that is also couched within an understanding of the other practices as well and so that if you were to um you know, if this were to be fleshed out and well understood and, and well mapped out, that you could start to um, improve or, you know, um, be a bit more personalized in how you teach meditation. And it's, you know, if you contrast that to something like um, going and finding a, a teacher who has had a lot of success with a particular technique within a particular tradition, You've got a lot of people who, you know, earnest seekers and are really wanting something out of their practice and will find themselves in a tradition or, you know, with a teacher in a space that they'll practice for years and years and years and years and years and um, really not get very far with it because it just doesn't work for them. It's just not what is best for their nervous system. And that is obviously part of the part of the kind of journey is sort of like finding, you know, what works best for you. But I think the potential here is to sort of avoid a lot of those cul-de-sacs and to be able to um, prescribe, for lack of a better word, a even if it's slightly better, um, but more personalized and direct um, teachings that are based on their architecture, their their strength and weaknesses, and what they want out of it, but which could follow you along as you develop along the path, right? Or as you develop, uh, or maybe, you know, first you're dealing with stress and then, okay, you've managed to kind of bring that under control. And then maybe there's some 
relationships in your life or some other sticking points that you, you're looking for other practices to help you manage, great. Well, if we understand, you know, this practice it strengthens, you know, em empathy, relational centers in the brain, then right, let's move there and let's like start practicing with that. And that most helps you in the moment. And so it keeps meditation sort of fresh, effective, and sort of based on a framework that is, uh, you know, plausible. Um, and that's really fascinating to me. And uh, it also kind of brings up the question in terms of what what is the specific practice that, you know, do, do you think that, you know, in certain wisdom traditions, we have the, uh, the, the, the set of instructions, they, it's just general, like everyone follows the same set of instructions, regardless of your own cognitive architecture, right? And for you, do you do you find that you have to kind of let the path reveal itself or let the practice reveal itself to you? Or are you finding that, um, you know, I'm going to try this this method to see how I'm doing, uh, you know, see um, if I'm seeing any results with this practice, or do you kind of adapt accordingly? I think um, those two things end up being the same thing mm. in a in a in a way. So th there is a bit of a bit of a downside to this way of thinking that is worth sort of flagging from the outset and being sort of just open and vocal about, which is that if you sort of overthink this and over attribute um, value to a particular framework, a particular path, a particular map of practices, a, a map of development, then that can be as limiting as it can be informative as, form, informative as well, where you're just trying to get to the next level or like, you know figure out the next thing or drop the next bit of your ego whatever that is and and i think that's a bit of a trap with this approach um because it's a really attractive thing it's, it's part of what you know really trapped me or got me or pushed my buttons in consulting you know that you've got this structure form where you're like okay now i'm here and there's like two years of this thing and i tick these boxes and then i'm going to be here i'm going to have this much and then i'm going to be here and it's like all laid out for you as this journey and you kind of you that's really appealing in some ways there's a lot of like you kind of want to be able to do that in reality no matter how good these maps and models become um they're not the territory right so it's never going to be as um, clear cut and black and white and understandable or obvious as um, it originally seems or that it is presented as. And in that way, I find in my own practice that it is kind of an organic process and it is something that just takes curiosity and a bit of dedication. And with those two things, the rest sort of come um, and if we can just not be too attached to what that looks like, then there's kind of teaching and everything that's going on. Um, and the more that you can kind of lean into that as sort of life as a teacher and your experience as a teacher and like every little conversation, every person that you meet is potentially like holding the next key to unlock that little bit of misunderstanding that you're holding in your mind, um, the smoother things seem to go and the more you can sort of flow with your life as practice. So. I realized in kind of laying that out on a more personal side versus my work, it's kind of like this dichotomy, right, of the approaches. Um, but I do think that 
with a bit of awareness, a bit of skillfulness, you can weave those two things in together, use the map as a bit of a framework for exploring, you know, and to kind of hold it lightly and to be making sure that, you know, you're not um, overly committing to one idea or another and being open to other potential avenues, while at the same time not being too attached to that and realizing that, you know, what we're talking about here is, um, is a kind of messy biological process that unfolds over, you know, year-long time scales and uh, that leverages, you know, neuroplasticity, which isn't, you know, like a computer program. It's 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 uh, it's much more fluid than that. Um, so to kind of have both those sides of it. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know. Even even in the scientific world, true science is really not holding on to your hypothesis as yeah this this is yeah. the gold standard. I'm I'm attached to it. This is what I'm trying to prove, and I'm going to you know use everything in my power to try and prove this. Like that's not how science works, right? And totally. and I guess that's not how your contemplative practices work either. Like um, I wonder how much it is like yes, there is. Um, a part that's laid out for you, but it's up to you to travel on that path. It's up to you to journey and perhaps you'll find your own um, ways of being and innate wisdom that kind of comes through that um, process. And yeah. it's, I suppose, having that kind of dedication and curiosity and um, yeah, really just curiosity at the end of the day uh, of, 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 of our minds, you know, like I we don't know it. what we don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, what's been interesting is when you have a very um, sort of well-defined, structured framework based on first principles and biological stuff, and then what comes out of it is a policy that is something to the effect of what I said before, which is know that you don't know, mm -hmm. right? And so from this like very sort of rigorous framework, there's this there's this insight or this intuition that kind of comes out of it that is the best thing that you can do is actually to be continuously curious or like continuously don't know mind in, in every way, everywhere you're going. And I don't know, I just really like that. I really like that it's kind of very, you know, traditionally sort of hard-nosed scientific thing is then sort of giving me this hint that the best thing actually is to not Take it to, to really put your mind in the phenomenological situation where you feel like you um, are fresh at every moment. And, and all of these experiences, I feel, are subjective experiences, right? And what's so exciting about the neuroscience is that we are able to kind of objectively analyze these subjective experiences and see if there is any correlation between what all of these traditions are talking about. So I think, um, I think, like you said, we're an exponential curve of loads of research being done in this field. And, but I still feel like there's a lot more to be done. And it would be great to kind of have that language and instead of like, you know, have, having this magical language or this like shrouded in religion and a terminology and uh, obscure language, ancient languages that, you know, most people don't understand. Um, hmm. how do we like then disseminate this information to the masses you know that's I think the biggest positive impact of this kind of work and this kind of program is that it gives that language it gives that language that is 
palatable to the largest number of people. It also allows you to start having conversations like governmental bodies. You know, if we really do start to be able to map out, hey, this is what it means for us to have a nervous system. This is what it means to be human, right? This is what we've got going on. And we can really improve the situation. We can really improve our experience if we do these things. And this is why. Here's the mechanistic sort of link between this exact practice and this exact effect. And with that, you can start to, you know, affect serious policy change and educational change. Maybe start bringing these things in earlier in our lives. You know, why is it that nobody ever asks you how you're feeling at school? You know, <laughs> you're just kind of going, going, going. And I think that bridge that I just touched on there, that's the really important part. That's the important part that is still missing. That bridge between what we're doing, which is the, the practices themselves, be it yoga, meditation, or even psychology or, or psychotherapy. And then there's the effects, right? Because the, the, the field of contemplative neuroscience at the moment is mostly preoccupied with effects. So you'll put like a group of people, you'll get them to meditate for eight weeks, and then you'll run um, tests on them in very different kinds of tests. And you'll say, okay, well, that meditation had some correlation with these effects. And so we know that this meditation leads to this. And there's so much exciting stuff of that sort out there in the field where, okay, this kind of meditation leads to these effects. These kind of meditation leads to these effects. And we're starting to get a pretty good picture about what meditation does. And already that has a lot of people excited. Um, already, I think you can look at that and be, um, you know, motivated and convinced to do something about that and be implementing it um, in any way that you can and or any way that you see is helpful. But it's still lacking that bridge, that causal link between the practice and the effect. We don't know why paying attention to the breath or doing compassion meditation leads to the effects that we see in the research necessarily. Um, and that's where I think the computational stuff really starts to come in, where you can start to have these causal um, links between between the two things. And when you can really do that, when you can really articulate that clearly to anybody, then I think um, we get into a pretty exciting situation where anybody who listens uh, really will be um, motivated to you know, share this with as many people as possible because we're all in the same game here. We're all just trying to like figure out how best to you know, manage these incredible machines that we're, we're living in, right? These incredible biological um, miracles. How do we, you know, what do we, what's the best to do with them? And there's so much to be gained from these ancient wisdom traditions. And if we just had the language to kind of get that across to as many people as possible, then I'm not saying we take everything, obviously, but just a little bit, just a few tools in the tool, toolkits of kids going through school today means that two, three generations down the line, we might be living in a completely different world. Oh, that that is so exciting because you know it's all about how do we get our neurobiology to work for us instead of against us when yeah. the culture has stacked everything against us to kind of go haywire in our systems in our nervous system yeah. so yeah. how are we able to leverage that and I think of course like wisdom traditions have some great insight into how you can manage that right um even even things such as doing um, selfless work like you know like karma yoga for example that yeah. branch of yoga that focuses Generosity. on service coming from like service right and 
I think from a neurobiological perspective, it's probably because it takes that kind of ego out of, well, I don't know how much the ego disappears completely, but I feel like doing it in that way kind of takes the ego out and then that naturally reduces the amount of stress or achievement-based kind of culture that we live in to kick in and override our systems. Um, Completely. So, but, but if we had the neurobiological signature of, oh, this is what it means to operate from compassion or to operate from joy or to operate from service. Um, and, you know, if we understood what we're striving for, like what is enlightenment, you know, is it just um, having, a, you know, you've seen it described in different wisdom traditions by different masters of meditation, but, you know, I have never experienced that apart from like certain um, moments of slipping into that void during like meditation retreats. Like, I don't think, you know, that I don't think I've experienced that moment of like whatever they're describing, right? Um, what that is. And it's fascinating <laughs> to have that. And I don't know, maybe one day we'll even, I think we're already having certain kind of neurofeedback technologies that are helping people meditate better uh, to understand their own kind of, okay, now I'm like in beta wave. Okay, now I've achieved alpha. Now I've achieved delta. Yep. And you know, um, I think. Do you do you have much insight into kind of that world of technology and of the neurofeedback world? Well, just on in your point, just just before you know, you you said something there about you know what is it like to live from a place of compassion, a place of joy. And like, how do we make sense of what these, you know, meditation masters and traditions are telling us throughout all time? I think, you know, that we can, you can go, you can go deep on sort of teasing all that stuff out, but really what seems universal across the board, across, you know, traditions, religions for all time is this move towards a more um, encompassing sphere of empathy and identification. Right, moving away from being completely absorbed in your own little story to starting to notice the people around you to starting to act from a place that takes them into consideration. And I think it's part of what is so, you know, powerful about like starting a family or being in a really strong community or like why we value those things so much is because that's the kind of experience that brings you out of your head a little bit and like, whoa, okay, so now my life is more in service. Yeah. And that sounds so anathema to what we think we want which is like no you know I want everything to be in service to me mm -hmm. right <laughs> but then in reality when you speak to people about it you know people on their deathbeds and they look back in their life you know what was the most value the best part of their life well it was the times when they were helping others it was the times when they were raising their kids it was the times when they were you know of service to their community and so to kind of start to understand how best to get there and why that is actually ends up being the best thing for you as well in a way um, is really important especially as we're moving into this time now where I mean 2020 has shown us there are serious global issues and there's just more coming our way with the climate crisis that does require a shift in identity. It does require a shift in mindset. We can't be thinking on, you know, individual, family, community, even national levels anymore. We need to be thinking on a global mm -hmm. scale. And the thing is, that's not easy 
right? It's actually pretty hard to do. It's really hard to do because we have this evolutionary programming of this in-group, out-group, tribal kind of um, programming that we've picked up from our from our evolutionary past that stops us from being able to do that. And so how do we use some of these practices? How do we use some of the insights from, from conceptual neuroscience, for instance, to um, help that transition, to, mm -hmm. to accelerate that transition to a more global, compassionate um, worldview? And it's funny because as I say that, global, compassionate worldview, it's kind of like, ugh. Right, like, you know, and I can I can imagine somebody listening to being like, yeah, whatever, you hippie, right? Like, it's it's, it's kind of like sticky and can sound a bit gross, but actually, what we're talking about here is really terrifying, and like, it can be really, it's like really, that's an edge, and it takes a lot of guts and and a bit of bravery, and like really push into, you know, maybe you're not the most important story going on. Mm. And there's a big part of you that you need to let go of and let die um, for you to be able to grow into that realization and start taking more wider problems more seriously. And that is not um, some airy fairy, you know, easy thing to do, right? How do you be the best ancestor? Gosh, I, I just love everything that you've just said because it's it's so powerful in a way as to why this work is so important because it's through empathy and compassion that we are going to make a shift in this world and you know the question that's always been in my my mind as well has been like how do we make compassion go viral as as you know as soft and you know as much as people don't want to hear it, it I think that is the key even within organizations and corporations like why is it so difficult for us to afford um, compassion to our, of the people that we work with, you know, yeah. when uh, innately we have that help us high, you know, we know it feels good to help other people. Um, but why is it that, you know, so much of the world is stuck in their own stories and in their own agendas and there's so much scarcity mindset and there's all these global challenges. And, you know, I think for me, like it's always been, yes, I think compassion and the ability to kind of see things from different perspectives greatly matters. But also, ultimately, I feel like it's all to do with kind of shining the light of consciousness on yourself to be like, okay, where can I see the reflections of, of things that are not right within me, you know, things yeah. that I'm striving towards certain virtues or certain, you know, my moral compass is is directed towards a certain um, path. And then, you know, how do I, how do I keep going down this path? And it's, it's, it's a constant state of reflection and uh, yeah, it. again, meta-awareness. I think that's the really, the real, the key point there and like everything you've said, like, how do you get out of the scarcity mindset? How do you move towards empathy and a place of compassion is, you know, getting out of this um, thing that we are all sort of taught growing up that the solution to our problems lie outside of us. That if only we could control the world a little bit more, you know, if only we could, you know, be a little bit more successful here and if only we could get people to act in a certain way or to have a little bit more of this or a little bit less of that and to just keep trying to hold on to everything and, and, and just keep it the way it should be, then you'll be okay. Right. <laughs> and the re, you know, the tough news is that actually we live in this crazy dynamic world that is so complicated. Like, 
that the impacts of your actions are impossible to predict. And so to be holding your, you know, sense of self and happiness and your readiness to be compassionate hostage to the situation being ready for it, you're going to be holding your breath for a long time. And I don't think it's difficult to shift that if only you were told from the beginning. And it's quite simple when you look at the neuroscience and you just say, hey, like your experience is really just something that is happening in your nervous system. And a big part of that, of course, is what's coming in towards your nervous system, what's being, you know, what's coming in from the environment and bombarding your nervous system, right? Sure, but like, you can't really control the stuff that's going on out there or only minimally anyway, and only mm -hmm. sometimes. But what you definitely can control and what we can now show and prove is the nervous system itself. So if the nervous system is the basis for your experience and what you ultimately want is a particular experience, well then start there, start with what you can control, change on the inside. And what's weird and what's kind of amazing then afterwards, right? Is that things start to have changing on the outside uh, naturally, right? So, so um, true. And that's just something that has to be almost experienced, right? To kind yeah. of believe in that because like, how does, I remember the first time I went on retreat, I got this challenge. I was like, well, isn't it kind of selfish what you're doing? Um, you're just sitting, sitting down for 10 days by yourself for your own happiness. Like, shouldn't you be out there in the world? Like, and that kind of really threw me a loop a little bit um, because like, oh, well, maybe this is really selfish, but um, I really don't believe that's true. I don't think you can really, um, like your effectiveness in the world, and like your, your ability to serve others is so benefited from your own understanding of yourself and how your own mind works. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I do not think that it's selfish at all because, yeah, of course, you get the benefits of it. But I think it was, um, you know, it, it, I think, again, you can turn it, flip it and say, like the Dalai Lama was saying, the first person to benefit from compassion is the one who feels it. And, you know, yeah, you are being compassionate yeah. to yourself and others, but ultimately like you are the first person to benefit from feeling these feelings yeah but actually it's funny because in when you teach meditation that's the part people often find the hardest right is really? uh, is actually feeling letting themselves feel happy like giving yourself permission to be happy giving yourself permission to love yourself mm. um and whilst and, and there's kind of like this this paradox almost uh, I see so many people in where you're meditating you're practicing you're doing all these things in life to uh, you know be happy in some way right but then at the same time you're holding this deep core belief that you don't deserve it you're not good enough for it I'm not allowed to be happy or whatever your story is that's keeping you away from it and to just kind of say hey there's not a finite amount of compassion here there isn't a finite amount of joy there isn't a finite amount of well-being that uh, we have to dish out in the same way that we dish out sort of natural resources <laughs> you know this is something that we can all have in abundance yeah yeah i i definitely feel like um compassion is something that needs to go viral on some level i just I just can't 
wait until this research becomes accessible to the public in such a way that governments actually start paying attention to this and understand that you know it, it is a scary world that we live in and, and to some extent um, a lot of us become desensitized because there's too much right there's too much for our nervous systems to take and uh, a lot of pain and suffering that we see in the world that it's almost easier to shut it all out or let it all in and then have it have that desensitize you and um, I think you know that's scary because it's moving towards a more kind of tribalist nationalist kind of you know almost fascism in some respects as well like in India like that's exactly what's happening so it is scary and it's, it's also surprising in a, in, a, in a way because you have like this country that like India, for example, that talks about, um, you know, these spiritual practices and meditation and compassion and yoga and all of this, but it doesn't translate into the governmental structure or the, yeah. the government talks about it in such a way, but doesn't actually practice the, the tenets of yoga or the, you know, uh, and, and, and it's just like, okay, so maybe, maybe this research, you know, that is in contemplative neuroscience science will really help governments understand the best ways to kind of work together and because it's I mean it, it seems almost straightforward to me that you know if you have an abundance mindset the more people that are educated the more people that want to contribute to to our planet if you collaborate and come together then there's obviously going to be an exponential increase in our uh, technology and our ways of working together and our ways of supporting each other and it's just I feel like I feel like it's a good time as well yeah well baby steps but also like we better hurry up a little bit yeah (laughs) things are things are getting kind of serious and if we can't start you know working together and, and, and thinking on this level soon then you know it's uh the planet's not gonna wait forever for us to wake up but I do think that with the science, there is a way forward, at least for talking about this. And also, I think just more specifically, just looking at like systems theory, because if you, what you were saying there is how, how can governments work together? How can, how can we you know, tackle these problems? What we're talking about is really complex systems, mm-hmm. um, you know, self-organizing and optimizing in ways that just work better. And I think one of the interesting things to come out have a lot of sort of game theory and, and systems theory is that actually altruistic behavior, um, empathetic kinds of behavior end up being what's best, not only for the individual, but for the entire system that they sit within. Mm-hmm. And okay, we know this on some level, right? What goes around comes around or whatever, however you want to call it. Um, but if you can really prove it and say, hey, it's actually better economically and from a sort of mental health and societal level and all these different ways to be acting from a place of compassion. Like let's, let's institutionalize empathy and compassion. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's such a reflection of nature as well. Like you see how nature thrives. It's based on abundance. It's based on sharing resources. It's, it's based on one tree actually communicating with another tree and be like, Hey, do you have enough nitrogen? <laughs> do you need to like through the mycelium networks and it's just like that's what like that level of symbiotic relationships if that's embedded into our 
cultures and our ways of working and our ways of being, then I think that could be a massive shift in how we live and how we approach the world and ourselves and other people. And yeah, I mean, as much as it's kind of like hippie thinking, it's it's true, you know, mm. on some level, it's how do we bring compassion um, to the table? Um, um, okay, so I know that, you know, we've been talking for a while and I feel like I could talk to you about this forever, but just want to respect your time as well. Um, I guess the last question that I'd love to ask you is if you, if you had a genie and, you know, you had this like research question that you really wanted an answer to, like, what, what would that be? And you could ask and you would get oh. an answer. <laughs> If I had a genie that could answer any research question, you know, <laughs> um, I think what would be really helpful for us right now would just be to be clearer on what we are, to understand ourselves more. And in some ways, every field of, of science is kind of contributing to that. Mm. And so that's why it's difficult to pin it down to one exact question that you could ask the genie. But so much of our struggle just comes from this lack of self-awareness basically that we don't you know quite know how we fit in to our environment we don't quite understand how we fit into the wider game we don't really quite know what the wider game is if there is one and there's just this this lack of meaning and feeling sort of comfortable in ourselves that drives so much of this like anxious like vibrational kind of mindset in this sort of human psyche and so if we could just come to a better understanding of what we are who we are and how we fit in and how we can best you know taking that how best to act you know how do we best come into harmony with with everything that's going on you know what are the what are the what are the things that we should be doing if we knew more about what was going on that's the question i'd like to answer i suspect that the answer is probably one that's been given to us a thousands and thousands of times before <laughs> which is compassion <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um i think you know that'd be a good place to start <laughs> yeah i would i would love to love to explore that more as well in terms of actually having the answer to that but you're right we probably already have the answer and it's just about us putting that into practice um it's been it's funny these these teachings are just last last point with these teachings i find that the more um the more I, I i practice with them the more it feels like a lot of these old platitudes these things that we just take as as um you know, exhausted things are just literally true, right? And to not take it further than that and not to overthink it and to just almost take it at a very mundane, simple, straightforward way and 
not to overthink it and look for too much mystical and transcendence and outside of our minds and escaping from life or whatever and just bring it back down to earth and just simply do the things that we know we should be doing um, in the way that we've been told for millennia. I mean, exactly. I, I feel like the simplest um, answer is often the right answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um it's been an amazing amazing conversation like i feel like again like a micro flow state uh just just talking about all these things with you it's been an absolute pleasure to hear more about your journey and your research and uh thank you so 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 much for coming on to the podcast yeah no thank you so much it's been a lot of fun talking to you really enjoyed it <laughs> Thank you. And um, yeah, you know, I'd love to hear about how your research progresses and um, I'd love to talk to you about it once, you know, uh, you've, uh, you've got more insights into how you want to frame your questions and how you want to go down that rabbit hole. Absolutely. I'd love to. Let's do this again. You can find Lars's work with organizations at neuronsofpotential.com and you can also connect with him on LinkedIn at Lars Sanford Smith. Thank you so much for listening. It's an absolute pleasure to have you back. And I am wishing you an amazing, amazing 2021. If you have any questions or any feedback, please get in touch at razor at razorsally.com. Don't be shy. Otherwise, I'm wishing you a beautiful, beautiful week. Until next time. Peace out.